Stand clear of the closing doors, please. In a Brooklyn fractured into speculative storyscapes, you never know what could be lurking around the corner. Fantasy, horror, sci-fi, or the just plain weird. Join Professor Brad Overstreet, Senior Junior Lecturer Sam Spellingbaum, Professor Emeritus Calliope DeGamowitz, and Inquisitor James Earl King II as they discover the stories drifting in and out of your reality. It's Professor DeGamowitz. Let's dispense with the formalities. I'll call you Brad, and you can call me Professor DeGamowitz. So listen, Brad, that AFI Top 100 you and Spellingbound are always going on about, well, it's bottoming out to a minus 60, which in itself is not unusual, except for one teeny tiny little detail. The whole thing stinks. Not blue cheese stinks, not burnt caramel stinks, not rotten apple, gel and seaweed, or gym shorts B.O. stinks. Have you noticed, you narcissistic, oblivious nincompoop? And why aren't you ever in your office, Brad? I got stories coming out of my carousets. I got crows dropping stories on my Kindle. I got gift baskets of cutesy pied bunnies with pink, purple, and baby blue stories. I can't get any work done. That Wheeler Dealer King wants to sell me even more stories. And they're good stories, Brad. Not your usual trivial cliché derivative fan fiction. It's a glut. A glut of brilliance. Whose fault is this, Brad? Do something, Overstreet. You are useless. Useless! No offense. Look, just listen to this one. The Machine by Fenders and Jelly Clark. Then call me back. The Machine by Fenders and Jelly Clark. What is it? I asked. A machine, my guide said. I looked at him dryly. That much was obvious. The thing loomed high above me, a great metal contraption of intersecting pipes, shifting gears, and spinning cogs, like something Jules Verne might have dreamt up. I tried again. I mean, what does it do? My guide scratched a thick, unkempt beard before answering. It keeps the world going. I looked at him in surprise. That was unexpected. A machine that kept the world going, sitting in an abandoned warehouse in nowhere Bushwick. Who knew? The contraption groaned and shuddered, emitting a steady jet of steam. I backed away in alarm, only then noticing the people that swarmed about it. One group, clad in black, banged at its many pipes with metal tools, trying to rip them away. Who are they? I asked. My guide now sat on the floor, removing his worn boots. Nihilists! Want to destroy the machine? Think it'll stop the world? Using his teeth, he ripped open a packet of socks I'd bought him. My ticket to this place. Would it? I asked with a little apprehension. Not if they have anything to say about it. 
He nodded at a group of figures on a raised platform. Dressed in dark suits, they stared down at the Nihilists, watching their every move. Some had medals on their chests like generals. And they are? Authoritarians, my guide said, wriggling his freshly covered toes in satisfaction. They want to make sure the machine keeps going, have it in their heads that they control it. Do they? I asked. My guide only gave a sharp bark like a laugh. Another group caught my eyes. Covered in white robes, they knelt before the machine, staring up at it reverently. What are they doing? I asked, puzzled. My guide bothered to look up before returning to his socks. Holiers, he said in annoyance. Just sit there worshipping the machine, waiting on it to tell them how to live their lives. One of the figures in white got up suddenly. He turned his robes inside out to reveal a black cloak. Walking over to the nihilists, he picked up a metal pipe and began attacking the machine. I looked at my guide curiously. Lost his faith, he chuckled, flashing a dull yellow smile. I shook my head and found myself staring at a last group. This one was dressed in blue. Some of them gestured at each other in debate. A few held instruments to the machine, stopping to record the results. Others merely stood listening, or lost in their own thoughts. And them, I asked. Thinkers, my guide said, now on his feet again. Scientists, social engineers, philosophers, dreamers. Think if they figure out how the machine works, they can fix it. Maybe even build a better one. Does it... The machine need fixing? I asked. My bedraggled guide eyed me levelly. Have you seen the world? Good point, I muttered. So that's it then, he said. Time to take you back. He walked off, motioning for me to follow. Wait, I ran to catch up with him. I still have questions. Where did the machine come from? How did it get here? My guide turned to me with a raised eyebrow. You want to know if there was some intelligent designer behind the machine? Or whether it came together through random chance? Maybe you want to know what was here before the machine, eh? I swallowed and nodded deeply. Okay, he shrugged. But it'll cost you another pair of socks. Benderson J. Lee Clark is an occasional speculative fiction writer. His short science fiction and fantasy stories have appeared in online venues such as Daily Science Fiction, Heroic Fantasy Quarterly, Fantasy Magazine, Fireside Fiction, Tor.com, and several print anthologies, including Griot and Hit News. His debut novella, The Black God's Drums, will be published by Tor in August 2018. You can read his ramblings on science fiction and fantasy, diversity, and more at his blog, The Disgruntled Haradrim, www.pdjlyclark.com. He also tweets stuff at pdjeliclark. Michael Taylor is undeniably the greatest man in the world. 
He enjoys games, puzzles, and experiencing interactive theater to improve upon the subtle, intricate, yet uniquely brilliant greatness of Michael Taylor's mind. This episode of Kaleidocast Season 2 was brought to you by our Kickstarter supporters, Kara Murray, Todd Moore, and Daniel Stalter. Behold! The machine. The machine. Is it supposed to swell like that? Uh, Not normally, no. Good thing we're turning it off. Look, can you see the switch just over... Professor Overstreet, what are you doing? Is that a Zeppelin? Ah! Hate to get on the wrong end of these babies, don't you, Sam? Well, if you stay out of my way, you won't have to. What is it with you people and Zeppelins? Get away from the machine. It's mine! Just think of what I'm going to be able to do with with a power like this. I'm going to rule the multiverse! <laughs> Professor, listen to me. The machine is about to go critical. It's already starting to spit out. Duck! Ah! Oof! Professor Overstreet, are you alright? My god, it's a story. The Water Walls of Enceladus by Mercurio de Rivera. Oh, there's more of where that came from. Look out! The Water Walls of Enceladus by Mercurio de Rivera Narrated by Tatiana Gray The bots laced my snow boots while Sancho stared at the door, wagging his tail in anticipation. The cysts made it difficult for me to breathe, to swallow without pain. My toes cramped up. I stomped my foot, scattering the six-legged bots. Is everything all right, Lily? A voice boomed out of the walls. We're worried about you. Tracks, my official shadow. I'm fine, I lied. I felt numb, as if I was locked inside a glass coffin, able to see the world of the living, but unable to affect it in any way. I'd never learned where the cameras were located, but Tracks, or one of his brethren, observed me 33 hours a day. I had given up any pretense of privacy three years ago, part of the deal I'd made to be stationed here on Enceladus with the Worgans. Earth Council couldn't have cared less. It had given them one less freak to deal with, and a bone they could throw to our alien partners and benefactors. The bots helped button my parka and activated my blue-tinted body field. Sancho barked. His leather collar glowed, enveloping him in aquamarine blue. The door to the shelter slid open, and tracks stood on the other side. A dozen other worgans accompanied him, short, squat, dressed in white robes, their scaled white faces peering at him from behind furred hoods. They stood in a semicircle and cast sidelong adoring glances in my direction. The worgans knew I hated being stared at, but they couldn't help themselves. We need to move quickly, Trax said. He turned, and I strode by his side on ice plains that stretched to the horizon. Sancho trotted ahead of us, 
barking at a crescent Saturn that filled a quarter of the black sky, its orange-yellow hues creating the illusion of a neon-lit landscape. I didn't recognize any of the worgans today except Trax. He had told me about the long queue of worgans desperate to come and see me, to hear my voice and revel in my beauty. My beauty? I'd been considered a plain Jane growing up in San Joaquin, among the long-haired Latinas in the Guacara district, and that didn't change at the Universidad de Caracas, where I disappeared under a cloak of invisibility, despite my top-of-the-class grades in exobiology. I'd never stood out in a crowd and had no desire to do so. But that all changed after I contracted the alien virus while exploring the Odyssey comet, after the massive cysts and pustules formed on my face and neck. Of the dozen or so worgans present, one pair was tethered. A rubbery cord snaked through the snow, connecting their craniums. I hadn't seen this often. The worgans were usually more circumspect about publicly displaying their reproductive processes. Trax extended his arm, gripped me by the elbow, physical contact that made the other worgans mutter jealously, and guided me to the buzzer. I stepped aboard the triangular platform and clutched the handlebars. Sancho scampered around us, yelping, sliding on the ice. The worgans were oblivious to his presence. Come here, boy, I said, and he leapt onto the buzzer beside me. He was still spry, despite his advanced age. Yes, go with her, boy, one of the aliens called out. Good boy, another worgan cooed. They kept their eyes fixed on me when they addressed Sancho gauging my reactions at all times, hoping to curry favor with me. Normally this behavior would have annoyed me, but by now it had all become part of a dull, unending routine. The other worgans boarded their buzzers, and soon we were speeding across the flat, icy terrain, skimming above the glittering ice fields toward Tiger Stripe 3, toward the sub-parallel furrows and ridges stretching just inside the perimeter of the force field. The buzzers remained suspended ten feet off the ground, providing us a panoramic view of the ice plateaus. Trax knew that observing the rise of the water walls usually picked me up, left me with a sense of wonder and awe. But today my brain felt sheathed by a black cloud. I hadn't been able to shake the cobwebs of depression for months. The first geyser erupted in a spume that stretched twenty feet across. Then another one exploded followed by another. I'd studied the sulci jets in detail over the past three years, the precise pattern of the eruptions. Within minutes, 50 plumes spewed water, sodium chloride crystals, vapor, and ice particles miles into the night sky, reaching into outer space. The eruptions were explosive. The forest of geysers created an upside-down waterfall. Giant, ghostly fountains lit by Saturn and glowing with pink striations generated by the phosphorescent sea organisms that had been swept into the sky. Was this the microorganism's version of the rapture, I wondered? It seemed appropriate to think of the water walls as ghostly. I felt like a ghost myself, a shell of the exobiologist who volunteered for this assignment. The fog in my mind lifted slightly. The rise of the water walls remained the most intense and spectacular phenomenon I'd ever seen. This brings you pleasure, Lily, Trax said. 
I hesitated. Nodded. Good, good. He bobbed his flat head and chortled. I turned away from his scaled face, focusing instead on the wondrous beauty of the water walls. How did I wind up here? It now seemed impossible that I'd actually come to Enceladus of my own volition to escape the looks of disgust from my colleagues and friends. My fiancé, Raphael, had sworn to stand by my side. And so he had. Until the painful cysts returned following the attempted corrective surgery. Then he managed to get himself permanently reassigned to the joint human worgen colony on equatorial Mars. Even Alejandro, my own brother, flinched at the sight of the grapefruit-sized growths that covered my face and neck, oozing pus. Our buzzers sputtered to a halt, softly descending onto the mint-green snow. Something about the electric current randomly generated by the Enceladan water geysers, liquid lightning we called it, occasionally disrupted the buzzer's operation. Fortunately, the outpost's force field, which regulated the temperature, gravity, and radiation levels, remained functional. The ground rumbled and quaked. Sancho barked and leapt back onto the buzzer next to me. After a few minutes, the spume subsided and slowly disappeared. Unlike the constant eruption of the tiger-stripe trenches, the parallel ridge of the sulci created the gushing water walls only once every ten days, for a few minutes. The Worgen scooped snow and placed it into the preservation tubes, as I'd instructed them to during our prior excursions. When I wasn't overseeing submarine probes that scoured the subsurface oceans, I spent my time studying the remnants of the organisms inside the water ice, cataloging the different forms of sea life evolution had crafted in Enceladus's underground oceans. How do you feel now, Lily? Trax asked. Behind us, Sancho barked and jumped up on his hind legs. When I followed the husky's gaze, I spotted this ship streaking across the night sky. Its flat, elongated shape was unmistakable. An earth vessel. It fired its landing thrusters, but they sputtered as the vessels passed over the sulci jets. The ship spun end over end before regaining its horizontal position, but not long enough to prevent it from coming in too fast for its landing. It scraped into the ice plains, sending slush spewing in every direction, and rolled over and over before finally settling right side up. The vessel's force field blinked off, and only white smoke curling into the night sky remained visible. I'm going with you, I said. There's no need. The Worgen rescue team is already being assembled, Trax said. Green-tinged flakes fluttered down around us as always following the rise and fall of the water walls. And they're taking me with them, I said. Trax hugged his shoulders, a nervous mannerism that surfaced whenever I asked him to do something that made him uncomfortable. Like all Worgens, he wanted to please me, which meant doing what I wanted, with one exception, of course. My requests to leave the outpost. As Trax constantly reminded me, I had agreed to a contractual term of service that bound me to Enceladus and to my Worgen hosts for five years. I'd petitioned Earth Council for this assignment after the cysts proved inoperable. I needed to get away from the constant looks of disgust and pity. To think that I had actually wanted to be surrounded by Worgens? Now my only desire 
was to escape from their slavish, fawning attention. I couldn't stand being under their constant scrutiny, the object of some twisted, unknowable alien fetish. The Worgans had opened up the universe to humanity with their field tech and wormhole-generating ships, and all they asked for in return was the one thing we couldn't give them. Our love. Most of us were as instinctively repulsed by the Worgans as the aliens were enthralled by us. I should have known better than to come here. The Earth vessel, and whoever was aboard it, might be my way out. I insist, I said. It would make me very unhappy to be excluded from the rescue team. Track stared into my eyes. His scaled face was a muted gray, darker than the chalk-white visages of his brethren, and his owl-like eyes never blinked. Very well. I clutched the buzzer's handlebars, Sancho at my side as always, wagging his tail at today's bonus excursion. He enjoyed the snow and the breeze generated by the oxygenators in the outpost's force field. Without the umbrella field, without our individual body fields, we wouldn't have survived Enceladus's sub-zero temperatures and thin atmosphere for more than a few minutes. Tracks rode with us, while the dozen other worgans flew in their own buzzers just behind us. I didn't like them trailing me, staring at me without my knowing it. I could feel their black eyes burning into me. We're punching past the field perimeter, Trax said. Prepare for enhancement. As we zoomed past the Tiger Stripe 3 trench, our body fields hummed, and the blue tint that outlined Sancho nose to tail intensified to neon brightness. He barked. I held up my hand to my face and saw the same blue glow. We popped through the force field. Our buzzers hiccuped and a slight vertigo struck me. We sailed over the blindingly white surface, the smooth plains turning into a terrain scarred by tectonic fractures and fissures. Some areas were covered in gigantic ice boulders and others with sharp scarps that had formed ridge belts. Soon, the ridge belts disappeared and the spots of green ice were replaced by a pure blue coarse-grained water ice that lined the parallel valleys. Within minutes, I spotted the vessel half-buried in the blue-white terrain. Over there! I shouted. At the sight of the crashed vessel, tracks wailed, and several other worgans joined in the keening. The worgans hurried to place two force field generators, fist-sized triangular devices, at the rear and nose of the spaceship. Soon the ship glowed the same neon blue as Sancho and me. Worgen bots swarmed over the side of the vessel to drill a hole in its side. Wait, I said. I recognized the ship's make, an L3 cruiser. I clambered off my buzzer and gripped the handhold to the main airlock, twisting, pushing, and pulling until the doorway irised open. Three Worgens leapt through the open door and Sancho raced through behind them. By the time Trax and I had entered, the Worgans and their bots were already working urgently on the unconscious body of the pilot's seat. A young woman, in a crimson-red marshal's uniform. From the alien's intense wailing, I knew the pilot was dead. The bots applied electric shocks to the chest and head. The Worgans hugged their shoulders and paced side to side. After a while, the bots abandoned the body and turned their attention to assessing the state of the vessel. Can you determine what caused the crash? I asked Trax. 
The bots continued to swarm through the ship, and within moments, Trax said, Liquid lightning from the water walls disrupted the ship's electrical systems. The pilot tried to adjust. Unsuccessfully. Like the Worgens, I was shaken by the sight of the dead body. She was in her late 20s, not much younger than me. By every objective measure, she was beautiful. Smooth skin, full lips, and she had blue eyes that stared at me as if in wide-eyed horror at my deformity. Yet to the Worgens, this woman and I were both equally unimaginably beautiful, as was every human. Pilot error, I said. The idea that had taken root since I first saw the vessel streak through the sky began to germinate. The ship, I realized, had sustained only minor damage to its force field. It was functional. The outpost on Enceladus' south pole was tiny by Worgen standards. A single human shelter, a dozen Worgen hearths where the aliens resided, and a laboratory complex. Unlike the teeming joint human-Worgen colonies that thrived on Titan, Mars, and Triton, even on the other side of the galaxy on Langalana, this station stretched only about a square kilometer. The aliens had used their bots and field tech as bargaining chips, offering to open up the galaxy to humanity for joint colonization. If they couldn't obtain our love, they asked for the next best thing, our companionship. Humans had instinctively loathed them. Their reptilian skin, their vinegary stink, their fatuous, fawning manner. But took the deal. When I first arrived on Enceladus, my facial cysts had grown to almost five pounds, and I had to walk hunched over. As they expanded, they caused nerve compression that left me in a steady pain. As I'd hoped, the Worgens tended to me. Smitten and lovesick, they wanted only to please. They assisted with periodic surgical decompression and pain medication, but their limited understanding of human genetics constrained them from preventing the cyst's regrowth. Your creature is nearing the end of its lifespan, Trax had said, soon after I'd first arrived. He'd observed me playing fetch with Sancho and scratching behind his ears. It won't survive more than a few months. Can I help you by keeping it alive? Will that make you happy? Sancho had continued panting long after we'd stopped playing. His pink tongue slobbered over my knee as I bent down to pet him. I didn't see a downside to trusting the worgen, given Sancho's age and deteriorating condition. He was 12 years old and slowing down. My brother, Alejandro had given him to me at my quinceanera when he was just a week-old pup. And Sancho had stayed at my side ever since then, even accompanying me to my one-bedroom apartment near the university campus. Trax and his brethren performed tests on Sancho, who growled at the sight of them. An hour later, they declared him improved. What did you do to him? I asked. Adjusted the bioelectrical activity in its brain to sink it to the magnetic field lines that drape this world? What does that mean? As long as the animal remains on this world, its lifespan will be extended. Are you happy? Have I pleased you? I paused to consider my response. 
Trax's intent, no doubt, was to tie me to this world, to ensure I would never leave them. But at the time of Sancho's improvement, I had every intention of carrying out my five-year commitment, and it would be comforting to have my best friend at my side. Yes, you've pleased me, I had said. In response, Trax wobbled side to side and bobbed his flat head. Lily, I have a question I must ask you. He paused. We are sentient, intelligent beings. We mean only to bring you happiness. And yet you shun us while this creature, which offers nothing, attracts your love and devotion. We've studied it down to the molecular level. It's not much more than a parasite. It obtains sustenance from you in exchange for nothing we can discern. What is its secret? Why do you love it, Lily, and not us? To this, I had no answer. For three years, I had worked with Trax and the other Worgans, cataloging marine life on Enceladus, from algae and seagrass to the amazing assortment of bioluminescent crustaceans. Every day, I'd trudge from my shelter to the laboratory complex to study the video taken by probes scouring the murky subsurface ocean, and the samples extracted from the scoopfuls of Enceladan snow collected during the rise and fall of the water walls. And although I had only a rudimentary knowledge of quantum physics, the Worgans tried to teach me about the particle entanglement supporting their wormhole engines, the nanotech used for their bots. I fell into a routine and did my best to stay mentally disciplined, focus on the work, which made me forget about my illness for large stretches of time. The Worgans, as always, were pleased that I was pleased. I'd also agreed, as a condition of my assignment, to provide the Worgans with my full, undivided attention, which meant no communications with Earth, a condition I soon came to regret. Within a matter of days after my arrival, I wondered about my brother, Alejandro, about my colleagues and friends at Encelacorp, all of whom I'd told I was relocating to the human worgen colony on Neptune's moon Triton for an extended period. I did my best to push them out of my mind. Worst... All my research on Enceladan sea life wouldn't be shared with the scientific community until the end of my five-year commitment. The Worgans, of course, cared nothing about cataloging sea organisms. While I studied chemosynthetic bacteria and black plankton, jellies and beard worms, the Worgans studied me. It wasn't long before I realized that their lessons on how their tech operated were nothing more than make-work, intended to keep me intellectually stimulated. They understood that without the illusion of some productive task, the human mind tended to veer from complacency to depression. And I was doing nothing productive, not truly, at this outpost. The Worgen's unending flattery, their constant surveillance, their obsessive concern about my well-being was smothering me. I'd fallen into a permanent, malignant sadness. I needed to get away from them. And now, with the earth vessel... I sat at a round table, ten feet in diameter, as anatomical diagrams of the copepods scrolled across its surface left to right. Later, the pictures would be replaced by equations, as Trax lectured, excited, as always, to be alone with me, 
on the ten-dimensional linear algebra that underlay Worgen Field Tech. Tracks, I said. He halted and nodded his head in anticipation of a question I might have, pleased that I'd spoken his name. We'd known each other for three years now. While other Worgens came and went, Tracks had managed to remain my designated shadow. Since I needed some assistance for my plan to come to fruition, I had no choice but to trust him. Look at me, I said, pointing to my face. What do you see? Beauty. Utter beauty. Among your kind, I've seen an assortment of marks, striations, skin tone variations, different arrangement of follicles, which extrude from your craniums. But in your features, Lily, I see a unique arrangement of skin folds and intricate protrusions. Being around you, it uh, creates a soft, pleasurable ache in my heart. He stared at me intensely. I love you, Lily. Please don't say that. He hung his head, rubbed his shoulders. Trax, I need to talk to you about something. A private matter. Something that might be able to shake me out of this funk I've been in. But only you. I don't know how many others are listening in right now. Of course, of course. He clucked instructions in Worganese that reminded me of the cooing of a pigeon. After a moment, he announced, We're alone now. I'm leaving this outpost, I said. Saying the words out loud immediately made me feel better. A shocked silence followed. Tracks rubbed his shoulders. But we have a contract in place. You sought us out. You pleaded with your people to sign the joint venture agreement to establish this outpost. Earth Council expects it could even lay the foundation for another joint colony for our peoples. I know that. I stared into his black eyes, his flat, scaled face, and fought back the revulsion. I wanted to escape the looks of repugnance from everyone, strangers, colleagues, even my family. Among my kind, there are certain unfair expectations about our appearance, especially for a woman. I'm sorry, I don't truly understand. He stood up, walked around to my side of the table. Sancho barked, causing the worgen to hesitate. Nor do I understand how you can tolerate this creature's presence, Lily. He pointed at Sancho, who now circled the table, panting. I do know that you've wanted to leave for some time. But in exchange for your commitment to stay with us, we've given you much in return. We've treated your illness, educated you, even preserved the life of your creature. It's nothing you've done, Trax. It's me. Human beings aren't meant to be alone. I shook my head. I don't know what I was thinking. But you are not alone, Lily. That's just it. I can feel you, all of you, watching me constantly when I'm eating, when I'm bathing, even when I'm sleeping. It's as if you're somehow inside my dreams. Do you study my brain patterns when I sleep? Lily, we all want you to feel better, he said, not answering. There are still two years left in our arrangement. 
And as much as I love you, I've dedicated my life to honoring the agreements between our people. Long ago, I entered into a contractual arrangement to spend seven years working in a vineyard on Mars. I directed the bots, even performed physical labor. All the while, awaiting my rightful turn to serve the humans stationed there. I followed the protocols, met my commitments, and ultimately received my reward in good time. So, too, must you honor your commitment. I'll take you with me, I said. I'm not sure where the words came from. His head jerked left and right. I want you to come with me, Trax. A long pause followed. Please help me, I said. We can leave together. We can spend more time alone, away from the others. I... I don't know, he said at last. If you want to make me feel better, if you really do love me, you will help me. I stood up and patted his chest, the first time I'd ever touched a worgen. Please consider it. Sancho barked as if he understood something was amiss. I ruffled the back of his neck. That's right, boy. Trax isn't going to let us down. Are you, Trax? The worgen stood at the center of the room, silently rubbing his shoulders. Ten days later, our buzzers settled in the mint-green snow as we stood before the carved crevasses and furrows running from the Tiger Stripe Three Trench. Enceladus orbited at its greatest distance from Saturn, which triggered the rise of the water walls. The planet wasn't noticeably further away when I stared at it. It still filled a quarter of the sky. A new organ contingent had shipped in to gawk at me. As always, they looked at me out of the sides of their eyes, so as not to be overcome by my beauty. When we marched toward the fissure, one worgen dared to gaze directly at me. Trax yelped something, and the alien quickly averted his eyes. The first geyser erupted, releasing an emerald stream of water. Then the second and the third exploded into the ink-black sky. The width of the stream expanded with each successive eruption until it stretched a hundred feet across. Except for a thin slit of clear space directly in front of us, the entire horizon consisted of a curtain of water fountaining skyward. I counted down the seconds in my head. My observations of the water walls over the past three years allowed me to time this precisely. Reaching down, I grabbed Sancho by the collar and shouted, Now! Go, boy! Sancho, Trax, and I bolted while the worgen stared, dumbfounded. Barreling through the clear path, the geyser erupted behind us. Go! I screamed as we clambered over the icy terrain. Boulders and thin cracks pockmarked and crisscrossed the plains, forcing us to leap and dodge as if running an obstacle course. The weight of my cysts, the pain in my face and neck slowed me down. Lily, Trax said, I know this course of action excites you, but it's not too late. We can go back. You can still honor your commitment. You stay if you want, I said. Sancho led the way through the snowbanks, his body field preventing his paws from sinking into the drifts. Tracks trailed about ten feet behind us. After several minutes, we reached the buzzers Tracks had promised would be waiting, far enough from the water walls that they now functioned normally. 
the three of us boarded, and I guided the buzzer in the direction of the downed spacecraft. How much time? I asked, as we sailed over the icy terrain. Lily? How long before the others can make it past the water walls? Are you feeling better? What? This activity seems to have lifted your spirits. What are you talking about? Your well-being is of paramount importance to us, that's all. Then I spotted them in the distance, surrounding the downed spaceship. A dozen organs. I'm sorry, Lily. Trax hung his head, hugged his shoulders. I landed the buzzer. The worgen contingent approached us. Trax! I couldn't find the words. I slapped him. The worgens observed with utter fascination. Trax's body field blinked on right after I hit him. He'd lowered it momentarily to allow my blow to land. He pressed his hand to his cheek and caressed the spot where I'd struck him. Talking about this escape, planning for it, immediately improved your mental state. Your bioscans showed a marked improvement. Your endorphins, your dopamine levels, all spiked. You do feel better now, don't you? I did, at least until a few seconds ago, but I wasn't about to give them any sense of satisfaction by admitting it. Let me be clear, I said, spitting out the words. I'm getting on that ship. How will you stop me? Will you actually resort to violence against a human being? Are you even capable? Of course you can leave, Lily, said one of the tethered work and pair. He held the elongated cord that stretched out of his cranium and into the head of his mate, who stood mute several feet behind him. But you won't. What do you mean? Your creature, he pointed at Sancho. Without you here, we will abandon this outpost. Alone, your creature will die. If you take it with you, separated from this world, magnetic fields, it also dies. Therefore, the only solution is for you to stay. For all these years, I've seen the way you interact with the thing, how you speak to it, how you caress it. You won't let it die. I stomped towards Trax, stood nose to nose with him. He's a dog. He should have been dead years ago. Do you think I'd give up my freedom for an animal? You don't understand anything about me at all. I turned away, unable to look at him. You underestimate how much I loathe you, how much I need to get away from you. You're sickening, smothering. I couldn't find the right word. Whatever the Worgens felt for me, it seemed blasphemous to call it love. I marched toward the ship's open entrance. The vessel had built-in Worgen wormhole technology. I could be in Earth's orbit in a matter of hours if I made minor repairs to the ship's field tech. In the back of my mind, I knew the Worgens were quite capable of lying, especially when it concerned matters of human companionship. Perhaps Trax wasn't telling me the truth about Sancho's connection to the world. Maybe this was a ploy to convince me to stay. Lily? Trax shouted. One more thing. Your condition is far more serious than you realize. Without our continued treatments, you won't live long. I paused, and the worgans all seemed to breathe a collective sigh of relief at my hesitation. 
Then I whistled. Come here, boy. Sancho sprinted to my side and we entered the ship together. I half expected the Worgans to intervene, to do something to stop us, but instead they simply observed. I locked the hatch. It was as if a great experiment was playing out before them and they were studying the results for later discussions. Within a few hours, I'd made the minor repairs. Trax's lessons had proved useful after all. I laid the course settings and the ship lifted off. Sancho sat across my feet as we left orbit, his tail wagging rapidly, then slowing. I patted his head, scratched behind his ears, Within seconds, he stopped breathing. Ten hours later, an orbital cruiser outside of Luna intercepted my ship and guided it to a way station. When the ship door opened, two guards greeted me by gasping and covering their mouths. I identified myself, expecting to be taken into custody. Violating the terms of a negotiated human work and compact was a serious matter. The consequences would be severe— Instead, they questioned me about the marshal, who'd piloted the ship and let me go without explanation. I was allowed to stay at the Crescent, an Arabian-themed hotel at the edge of the Sea of Tranquility. With all the wonders of the universe opened up to us by Wurgen Tech, including the spectacle of the water walls of Enceladus, we'd used their alien tech to bring Vegas to the moon. I surveyed the casino, trying to acclimate myself to the sparkle of the slot machines, when I felt someone pat me on the shoulder. Alejandro, my brother. We hugged and found a room outside the casino to sit down. I came as soon as I heard, he said. I've been debriefed. I wish you'd told me the truth about where you were going. He put his hand on mine, his voice breaking with emotion. I tried to find you. Do you know what charges they'll file against me? I asked. I knew something this serious could result in a lengthy incarceration. I hated the thought of substituting one prison of my own making for another, but at least I wouldn't have the Worgans monitoring my every breath and bowel movement. Lily? What is it? We broke off relations with the Worgans over three years ago. He ran his hand across his mouth. Not long after you left... I... I don't understand. All agreements with the Worgans were voided by Earth Council. Human Worgan contact has been prohibited for, for some time now. That can't be. Wait, the Worgans kept invoking my contract, kept saying I was legally bound to stay with them. You know the Worgans. They'd lied to me. That explained why they'd been rotating in so many worgans. I was the last human specimen on display. We've made contact with another alien species, Alejandra said. Non-humanoid. They've given us tech that blows away what the worgans shared with us. But what about all the joint missions? He shrugged. We've outgrown the worgans. They've been asked to leave our solar system. The joint colonies are divided up now. We kept Mars and the settlements on Europa and Triton. Uh, the Worgans got Langolana. I guess the outpost on Enceladus wasn't given much thought by Earth Council. Until that marshal was sent. 
It wasn't a full-fledged colony, after all. If I'd only known where you disappeared to... I received your message that you'd volunteered for a mission to Triton, but that settlement had no record of your arrival. One thing I don't understand, he said, gesturing at my face, is why you haven't yet received treatment. What do you mean? I've been getting periodic surgical decompression every... Lily, the Worgens gave us a cure for this virus a long time ago as part of their last-ditched attempt to ingratiate themselves with us. They supplied us with cures to a whole litany of illnesses. Then why didn't they... Oh, I said. After a long pause, he said, Raphael has been looking for you. He reached out to me to try to track you down. Rafi? He paused. I think he regrets breaking off your engagement. I'd shut that door long ago when he abandoned me. I couldn't imagine ever opening it again. Alejandro? Yes? Did Rafi come searching for me before the Worgens provided us with a cure for my condition or after? After? I'm sure he wanted to make sure you'd received the proper treatment. That's a sign that he still cares for you, no? I didn't answer. I agreed to meet Alejandro later for our transport back home to Caracas. He'd already made arrangements at the local hospital for my treatment. I spent the afternoon in the casino. Wherever I went, people murmured and gasped. Shocked onlookers quickly vacated every table I approached. I wound up sitting down to play blackjack alone with a white-knuckled dealer, all the other players having retreated open-mouthed, whispering under their breath. I felt sorry for the dealer, a young man who stared fixedly down at the table as he dealt my cards. I cashed out after a few unsuccessful hands and made my way to the carpeted promenade where I sat and stared out the windows at the lighted, dancing fountains on the paved lunar landscape. What a huge effort it must have taken to extract water from the bottom of the moon's craters, to implement the hydraulic system and force fields, all to create this colorful illusion for our entertainment. How it all paled in comparison to the water walls of Enceladus. The wall's magnificent, natural beauty. The lack of artifice. Every aspect of my life, it seemed, consisted of nothing but artifice. I felt something in my pocket and reached in and pulled out a leathery strip. Sancho's collar. I had left him in freeze mode on the ship. I pressed the collar to my nose and thought of him rolling in the mint green snow, wandering off and forcing me to chase after him, barking to warn me whenever we approached a fissure, lying across my feet like a warm blanket when I studied the microorganisms released during the rise of the water walls. Sancho. I hunched over, my shoulders shuddering, and I wept quietly. As I cried, strangers passed me by, pretending to look in the other direction, staring at me out of the corner of their eyes. Mercurio de Rivera's 
short fiction has been nominated for the World Fantasy Award and has appeared in numerous venues such as Analog Science Fiction and Fact, forthcoming, Asimov Science Fiction, Lightspeed, Interzone, IO9, Nature, Black Static, Abyss and Apex, Space and Time, and elsewhere. His work has been anthologized in Year's Best SF34, editor Gardner Dozois, Other Worlds and These, editor John Joseph Adams, Year's Best SF17, editors Hartwell and Kramer, Unplugged, The Web's Best Sci-Fi and Fantasy, editor Rich Horton, Paradox, Stories Inspired by the Fermi Paradox, and Solaris Rising 2, editor Ian Wicks. His stories have been podcast at Escape Pod, Starship Sofa, and Beam Me Up, and translated and republished in China, the Czech Republic, Poland, and Spain. Tor.com called his short story collection, Across the Event Horizon, by New Con Press, Weird and Wonderful, with Dizzying Switchbacks. Find him online at MercurioRivera.com. Tatiana Gray is a critically acclaimed actress of stage and screen and the audio booth. You can hear her voice on commercials, radio, audiobooks, and countless podcasts. She lives in Brooklyn, New York. Check out Tatiana's work at TatianaGray.com. This episode of the Kaleidocast is brought to you by our Kickstarter backers, Wes Rist, David Simmerly, and Paul Carley. Thank you for listening to the Kaleidocast a production of the Brooklyn Speculative Fiction Writers, who can be found at bsfwriters.com. Your hosts are Marcy Arlen as Clyde P. DeGamowitz, Bradley Robert Parks as Brad Overstreet, Cameron Roberson as James Earl King II, and Sam Schreiber as Sam Spellingbound. Your editors and producers are Marcy Arlen, who's also our director. Bradley Robert Parks, Jessica Plumley, who provides additional vocals, Cameron Roberson, managing editor, and Sam Schreiber, our story runner. Our music is Delusion of the Fury, Act 2, Treats with Life and with Life Despite Life, Arrest, Trial, and Judgment, Joy in the Marketplace, by Harry Parch, used by permission of Innova Recordings and the Harry Parch Foundation. Our intro was produced by sound engineer Matt Mozzarella. This podcast uses many sound effects from YouTube, freesound.org, and from FreeSFX at freesfx.co.uk. See our website for a full list of sounds from each episode. Special thanks go out to Marcus Song, Margaret Atwell at Kickstarter, C.S.E. Cooney, Carlos Hernandez, Fran Wilde, and Cat Valente. The Kaleidocast and all its contents are protected by a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License, which means you can share it all you want, but don't sell it or change it, and give credit to the Kaleidocast and its authors. If you like what you hear, please leave a review on iTunes or go to our website at kaleidocast.nyc to comment on what you've heard here and to find links to all our contributors.